Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, my name is Ryan Schreckengast, and I am one of the preachers here at GFC. And this morning, I want to ask you if you have ever wondered why do Christians make such a big deal about marriage? Seriously, no, because what, why do, do we argue about the definition of marriage, of one man with one woman? Or why do Christians object to just simply letting love be love, as the world would have us do? At its most basic, isn't marriage simply a social agreement that have benefits for the participants? like tax breaks or stable social norms. Maybe the world would even admit that at its best, maybe marriage is just about keeping your promises. And that's really important. But marriage isn't, they might say, on any really different level than any of the promises that one might make throughout the day, which we should also keep. Why is marriage such a big deal? Well, friends, I hope that today we will see that marriage is not about tax breaks or beneficial social norms. It's not even primarily about the two people who are married or their kids or the community at large. Friends, marriage is, above all, a picture of how God relates to his people. Marriage is, one might go so far as to say, more about your relationship with God and God's relationship with you than it is about your relationship with your spouse. And that, friends, is why marriage is such a big deal. So this morning, I hope that as we look at the marital relationship that is detailed in a poem between a man and a woman in Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verses 4 through 10, you will see that there is no other love, no matter how prolific, that can compare to a singular faithful, covenant love, both in marriage to a spouse and in your spiritual marriage to God. The book of Song of Solomon, or sometimes called Song of Songs, is a collection of poems that we have been studying for several weeks now, and we'll continue that this morning. And as we've been studying this, we have learned a lot about both the structures of these poems and we have grappled with the imagery behind them and what is the intent that we should take away from these poems. And so this morning, I've structured the layout of the message according to the structure of the passage, which is a literary device called a chiasm. And that's just a fancy word for a common way in Hebrew poetry to call attention to the focus of the text by placing it not at the end, but in the center of the argument, 
with mirrored themes that move out on either side of that central idea. So you'll see in your outline that we have several different verses for each point. First, you will see that she is beautiful and awesome, which is in verses 4 through 7 at the beginning and verse 10 at the end. You will see that there are many others in verse 8 and the first or the second half of verse 9 moving in one section. And finally, we will see in the main point of this passage that there is none like her, which happens at the beginning of verse 9. So turn with me to page 528 if you have one of the church Bibles, and we will jump into that first section. Verses 4 through 7. You are beautiful as Tirzah, my love, lovely as Jerusalem. Awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like the halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. And verse 10. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? So friends, in these verses, once again, the poet highlights for us the virtues of the lover that he is describing. She is beautiful and she is awesome. She is awesome. And just before the section that we read this morning, the poet, through the community of others, encouraged the woman in half of this section to answer the question, why is your man better than all of the others? And that's exactly what she did. She answered that question. And now the man responds in kind. And he uses language that is the same that has been used elsewhere throughout the book. Verses 5 through 7 focus on her beauty. And it's a beauty that's both physical, curly hair, a smile that has all of her teeth, blushing, flushed cheeks. But it's also evocative of the temple sacrificial system. And the Garden of Eden, through Jerusalem, through goats and ewes and pomegranates. And the author has used this language before to indicate that connection to those things as well, not merely her physical beauty. So the poet here, I believe, is trying to say that the bride is not merely beautiful, but also she is in so many ways a picture of what the people of God are to be like. They are to be beautiful and, friends, holy. She is awesome. And not awesome like, like, dude, awesome. (laughs) Awesome, awesome, like like slack-jawed, speechless, 
as awesome as an army with banners in verses 4 and 10. There's an element here, friends, of respectful fear, I think. A recognition of not only her beauty, but her holiness. Her amazing power as it connects to the almighty God. So how does this apply? How is this any more than simply poetic flattery, friends? Because this is what a godly woman is like. And, church, as the bride of Christ, this is what our corporate body should be like. In the last chapter of Song of Solomon, we saw a picture like this for the men. As God called us to be like priests who draw our wives into deeper worship of God. And so now in this chapter, we see a similar challenge for the women. This, women, is what God created you to be like. Beautiful, yes, but also awesome, powerful as an army. God has created you, women, to be an agent for advancing his kingdom in your own right. God wants every woman here, whether you're married or not, to be so intensely committed to your bridegroom Christ that your gaze is like an overwhelming fire. This is a picture of God that each woman here should aspire to, just as the men should aspire to the description in chapter 5. But if you hear this, women, and you feel inadequate in any way, like I did when we read chapter 5 a couple of weeks ago, remember that it is not primarily about you. It's about God. He is the one who you are growing to be more in the image of. So women, don't be afraid to be awesome. And husbands, do everything that you can to help your wife to be awesome. All of the things that he created her to be. Because this isn't about you. And it's not about her. It's about God. So husbands, this morning I challenge you, do not fall into the trap of limiting the gifts that God has given to your wife. Our job is to be like Christ to her. To draw her ever nearer to him. And that will make all of us together as beautiful and awesome as he is. Men, if we get this wrong, if we see only a part of how God created these sisters and wives around us, then we limit both the glory that is due to God in his creation of them 
And we miss the opportunities to join with God and with our spouses and with our sisters in accomplishing God's kingdom. Is it any wonder that there are so many wives who feel frustrated and unappreciated? And so many husbands who feel misunderstood and unloved. That's because our marriages are based on limited social roles rather than on glorifying the awesome creator God. So now let's talk about the church. All of us collectively here and on Zoom this morning. Church, this is true for you too. Collectively, as a member of Christ's bride, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you are married or unmarried, if you are part of the church, do not fall into the trap of viewing only a small portion of the gifts that God has given to this body of believers. Friends, God has made this place to be not only a place of teaching, but also a place of deep community. A place where we learn from one another and we bear with each other's sufferings. God has made this a place where you will receive from and a place that you will give to. And church, if we get this wrong, if we see only a part of how God designed the church to operate, then we may come on a Sunday morning and we may hear a message and appreciate a chance for academic growth. But we may not care to invest in the person who is sitting beside us. We may not care to know their struggles or care about their pain. Or maybe the opposite. Maybe we want that social interaction. We crave the friendships that we can gain here. But we are not willing to submit to one another in the authority to challenge us by God's word to increase in holiness. To cast out our sin. So is it any wonder that the people leave the church in frustration and dissatisfaction when we reduce what we know the church to be in any way. Because, friends, the bride of Christ is not merely a social or emotional or educational opportunity. The church is a means of glorifying the awesome creator God. That is why, friends, it is so important that we recognize the beauty and the awesomeness of that which God created, both in your spouse and in the church. Because, friends, if you undervalue those things, 
then you will be tempted to value other things more. And there are no shortage of others that are vying for that affection. There are no shortages of counterfeits that are claiming to be worth more than those things. So let's look at this next theme that the poet draws out for us in verses 8 and the second half of verse 9 as we move in and take another step toward the center focus of this poem. Read with me verses 8 and the second half of verse 9. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. Verse 9. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, and they praised her. So in those few verses, after establishing that the bride is both beautiful and awesome, the poet introduces now for us some tension. She is not the only one there is. There are others. There is an alternative to this way of singular mutual possession that the poet has been describing for us throughout the book. And that alternative is the way of King Solomon. Earlier in chapter 3, the poet contrasted the bed of Solomon with the beloved of his poem. And I think that he is doing the same kind of contrast here in these verses. The poet invites the audience to think of the greatest example of the most extravagant love, quotation marks, that they could ever imagine. And for the Hebrew people, that would be King Solomon. If there is anyone who by worldly reckoning would be satisfied with his love life, then it would be the king who eventually had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So I actually think that this text must have been earlier in Solomon's marital career, so to speak, because at this point he only has 60 queens and 80 concubines at this time. But don't worry, it will grow. But the point is that there are many, 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 many alternatives to the woman in question in these verses. But which, friends, is greater? The one or the many? Verse 9 indicates that they... That is, all of the queens and concubines and young women, all of them call her, singular, blessed. And they praise because of it. It is not this man who should aspire to the prolific romantic, quote, achievements of Solomon. But it is Solomon 
who should envy with every fiber of his being the relationship of this singular man and woman. How does this apply to both our marriages and our spiritual marriage with God? Friends, no other love, no matter how prolific, can compare to the singular, faithful love of spouses, both temporal and spiritual. Isn't it the greatest lie of our generation that you just need more love? Aren't there sources of love without number, as the poet says, that you can turn to for satisfaction? If your spouse doesn't love you the way that they used to, the world says, just find someone else who does. If your spouse isn't sufficiently amorous, just supplement with pornography. If your spouse fails to appreciate you, then just spend your time with all the people who do. If your spouse is simply not enough, then just get more. Look at the numberless alternatives to a monogamous, faithful, covenant relationship. Quote, open relationships, hookups, polyamory, affairs, and on and on and on are all promises that you could be satisfied if you could just be more like Solomon. Just get more. But friends, these are nothing more than the queens and the concubines and the virgins without number that promise but ultimately fail to satisfy. These verses show us that Solomon's way of love, no matter how prolific, can never satisfy. His way is empty. 60 and 80 becomes 700 and 300 and it is still not enough. We see that the queens and the concubines, the many, sing the praises of the one. This is why, friends, that there is no freedom of sexual expression, no greater number of partners, no amount of pornography, no free love, no redefinition of the fundamental terms of love or marriage, no fully expressed hedonism that can ever compare to the single covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. And that is why that those who choose Solomon's way feel the emptiness, but they don't know why. Why 
Why? Why? Why is a committed covenant relationship more satisfying, more fulfilling than others? Shouldn't having the freedom to just love however we want be the most satisfying thing? Why? No, it is not the most satisfying thing because, friends, marriage is not about satisfying your desire. Marriage is a living picture of the relationship between God and his people. And God, friends, is not polyamorous. God is faithful. God is monogamous. He is the God of covenant. This is why the 70-year marriage where the husband has Alzheimer's and may not even remember his wife's name in the morning. And yet she cares for him day in and out. This will always be of more worth than the most indulgent one-night stand. This is why the husband and wife that struggle together for decades through the loss of a child or through a crippling disease will always be of more worth than the most fiery affair. Because, friends, these are pictures of how God loves. Faithfully. Unconditionally. And eternally. They are pictures of God. And so, just as in marriage, we must realize that spiritual fulfillment, likewise comes not from the many options that are available, but from the one. Spiritual hookups today are just as prevalent, aren't they, as the physical kind? The temptation to build your philosophy from whatever tradition suits your taste in the moment. To pick and to choose from Buddhism and Islam, Hinduism, and Christianity, and atheism. To paraphrase from today's text, there are 60 religions and 80 philosophies and beliefs without number. And isn't it true that according to our culture, simply finding your right blend will satisfy Your spiritual hunger. But this is no more true. In your spiritual relationship. Than it is. In your romantic one. You will not find. Satisfaction. From the many. But only friends. From the one. You can't choose. The parts of the Bible. That you're going to like. And reject. The parts that you don't. Rather, we must make 
a commitment, a covenant to biblical truth and to submit ourselves fully to it. Because friends, there are not many ways to God. Only one. Only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Which brings us at last to the center of our chiasm. The focal point of the poem. We see the contrast to the many. Which is the inescapable truth. That there is none like her. So let's read this last part of the poem. Which is at the first part of verse 9. My dove. My perfect one is the only one. The only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. This singularity is the focus of the poem. There is only one pure, perfect dove. Let me be clear. I don't think that from a marital standpoint, this means there is one and only one, quote, right one that you have to find or forever you will be miserable. In fact, I think it's actually quite the opposite. It is about the covenant more than the individual. Just like the people of Israel. What made the people of Israel unique from all of the other nations before God? Simply the fact that he chose them. He chose them to be his people. They didn't have superior qualities that made them somehow worthy of God's covenant. In fact, they struggled time and time and time again with both literal and figurative idolatry. Their lack of faithful covenant is exactly what devastated both the people and God throughout the history of their relationship. And spoilers, that's what we're going to read about in the book of Lamentations which will be our next sermon series that's coming up very soon. But in spite of it all, friends, God sent Jesus to redeem his people. Because once again, marriage is a picture of God and his people. So no. This verse doesn't mean that you have to find the right one. It means that how you behave in the marriage either presents a picture that glorifies the character of God by accurately representing his love. Or friends, you present a distorted picture. One that confuses the image of God. Both to your spouse and yourself and your children and the world. 
because friends, God is love. God is love. And so how we love directly represents how he loves. And so fundamentally, because we are made in his image, that means that we are built to love. We are made to love. But the temptation, both in your marriage and in the spiritual marriage to God, in all cases, is to look for quantity over quality. And that is sin. Because it wrongly represents God. So how should we love? How do we apply these truths this morning? Simply love like Jesus loved. That's all. (laughs) Jesus had the greatest love. To lay down his life for us. While we were sinners. And only because of his covenant love. Do we have a chance to love like he did. Only because of his love. Can we love him. And love one another. And so this picture. Of the oneness of marriage. Is a picture of his love. And his desire For faithfulness both from us and how he is faithful to us. So let's apply this once again first to the married people here this morning and on Zoom. Lay down your life for your spouse. Because your marriage isn't primarily about what you can get out of it. And it's not primarily about giving your spouse or your kids whatever their desires are. Do you see that your marriage is above all else about being a living example of what God did for his people through Christ? It's a picture of God. And if we do it right, it should shout Shout the praise and glory that God deserves. That means that when you take time from your busyness to lovingly discipline your family, you are praising God. That means that when you find something to to do joined in unity with your spouse, what you are doing is praising God. God. That means that when you compliment your spouse rather than belittling them to your coworkers, what you are doing is praising Almighty God. And in the same way, all of us, whether married or not, can experience. The true love of God only through Jesus Christ. Because this marriage, no matter how good, is a picture of Christ and the church.
So if you are here this morning and you know Jesus as your Savior, if you have rejected those counterfeit claims of other spiritual loves, then my friend, you are already experiencing God's perfect love. Because Jesus gave himself for you. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul says that this marriage picture should look like how Christ loved the church and how he gave himself for her. And he says that the result should be sanctification, being made holy, being cleansed by his word. And that, friends, is what Jesus is doing for each one of us here this morning who believe in him. He is preparing you. He's preparing you to be presented to himself in splendor like a bride without spot or wrinkle or anything that you would be holy without blemish. And so, in the last days, we see that there will be such rejoicing and glory that heaven can barely contain it. We see this marriage fulfilled in Revelation 19 at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Bible calls it, where you and I, the church of Christ, have been made perfect and clothed in our wedding finery, in righteousness, in the deeds of the saints. United once and for all with our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. The same Jesus whose name is above all other names. And we will hear the voice of a great multitude crying like peals of thunder. Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We thank you, God, that you sent your son as a baby. Yet another picture, God. God, we thank you for these pictures. We thank you, God, that you give us the imagery to understand you even a little bit, Lord. God, I repent for how I do that picture wrongly. God, I repent of the, the false image that I give to other people. That I lift up, Lord. God, forgive me of that. Lord God, we are grateful to you that when we make those mistakes, you never do. You never forsake us. Lord God, it is your love that it's all about. So God, I pray today 
that we would be struck by that love. We would be transformed by that love and that we could show that love to others, Jesus. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.